0: But Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Well, my task this morning is to review the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, Shouldn't take more than six, eight hours. And um, so sit back, relax and enjoy. It'll be a good time. No, it should take about 25 hours to 28 minutes, to be honest with you, at least the way that I'm going to approach it. We're going to do a full review of the book of Hebrews today, and then next week will be our introduction to the book of Jonah, and I'll have maps and handouts for you and all kinds of good things, and that'll be an exciting time for us as well. But how do you review a book that uh, many of you have told me has been of major significance to you over the course of the last few months. It is not an easy task. What do you say and what do you leave unsaid? I mean, it's a, a brutal, brutal task, I must uh, must confess for you. I have given you the context of the book a number of times throughout our study, but it really bears repeating because it leads us toward why it's Im- important to us. And so, I will tell you a little bit about the book in general. So just sit back and relax. The book was written sometime in the late 60s AD. And the reason that I say that it was written in the late 60s AD is because the author, whom we do not know who it was, uh, wrote about the temple in Jerusalem in the present tense. And now the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and so it makes sense that the letter was written prior to that. A lot of liberal scholars will try to tell you that it had to be written much later, but, uh, well, there you go. That's what liberal scholars are all about. When, When Christianity first started, the Roman Empire viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism because most of the people who came to faith in Christ early on were in fact Jews, not surprisingly. And, and so they, because they saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism, they more left, left it alone at the outset because they considered it a national religion and they didn't have any problem with natural, na- national religions. But what happened was the Jews disavowed Christianity and said, no, 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 no. They have nothing to do with us. They, in fact, worship a king that you guys killed by putting him to death on the cross. We don't have anything to do with these Christians, whether they're Jewish or not. We and they are not the same. And so Christianity came under the scrutiny of the Roman Empire and as a result came under persecution and and ultimately death. Now the temptation, as I've mentioned many times, for the original hearers of this letter was to drift back under the umbrella of Judaism for two basic reasons. First of all, it was safer there. It was, in fact, a national religion, and it didn't get as much scrutiny by the Romans as did Christianity, and it was a safer place to be. And their family and friends were saying things like, well, come on, this religion that you have abandoned has been around for centuries, and it was a God-given religion. Why not come back home? And so there was a tremendous temptation on two different levels for the hearers of this letter originally. And and we might ask at this point, so really and truly, what does it have to do with us? I mean, because we're not Jewish and, and we're not under persecution. And so there's no temptation to drift away from our Christianity. Except I would say this, how tempted are we to just be one of the crowd instead of a a standout? How much temptation is there to really not be known as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because when people find that out, they look at us strangely when they find out that you really, really follow a risen king, that your life is different. And that the decisions you make and how you live your life in your relationships and in your workplace and, and how you handle your money is different because of who you identify with as the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and a lot of the attention that you get when you live for Christ, is not always positive, is it? And so there's a temptation to want to be just one of the crowd, to want to be back under an umbrella where you're seen as just one of the crowd. And I don't mean that this happens consciously. Uh, we don't sit back and say, yeah, I'm just going to drift. It kind of happens Naturally. But Hebrews doesn't allow for that. It says, no, you're to be different. You're to be a follower of Christ. And as a follower of Christ, if you truly take that seriously, you will be marked as different. There is reward, but the reward can't yet be seen. Ah, It makes it even more complicated, doesn't it? (laughs) So the letter was written to people in 65 to 68 AD, but it was written to us as well, and it is germane to us as well as it was to the original hearers, albeit that our context is slightly different. Now by way of review, this may or may not prove helpful to you, I am dividing the book into three sections. Three sections, they're highly unequal, Uh, The first section, and I'll go through these as we plow ahead here in just a few minutes, uh, involves just the first three verses of the book. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and I'll tell you in a moment or two why that section is 1. But in that section, we are introduced to the themes of the book. What the book is all about, what is going to be explored, and we'll look at those themes in just a moment. From chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, there is an exposition of those themes. In other words, there's an explanation of what those first three verses are all about. And we spent the bulk and majority of our time in our study, obviously because it's the largest section uh, in that part of the book. What do those themes mean to me as a church, as an individual, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapters 1 through 13 are, for lack of better term, the practical application of those themes. And so if if it's helpful for you to jot that down and and have that kind of understanding of the book of Hebrews, that's what we're going to look at this morning and and just kind of unpack that very quickly. So what I want to do is read the first three verses of chapter 1 and then make a few comments about them and then we'll move forward. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, and keep your mind focused on that term last days, we'll come back to it in a moment. He spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Two major points that I really want to point out here that I want you to sort of keep in your mind that are the major themes as the exposition continues throughout the the end of the book, the the, the chapter begins by saying, in the past, God spoke in a whole whole bunch of different ways to a whole bunch of different people. But in these last days, he has spoken once for all forever through one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Many ways, many people, many places in the past, in the last days he's spoken once forever through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is God's final word. That's it. And he's going to explain in the expositional part how Jesus is the final word. And when we get down to chapter, uh, verse three rather, In the past, in the Jewish system, there were sacrifices all the time. But when Jesus came along and he offered himself up as a sacrifice, the one who was the creator of all things, and he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and his work was complete. So his work is the final work. So in those first three verses, what we have is the introduction of Jesus as the Son of God, who is the final word of God and the completed work of God. And all the exposition is designed to explain how Jesus is superior to all the different ways in which God has spoken to in the past and superior to the people to whom he has spoken in the past and how his work is the completed work of God. I hope that makes sense. It's really what the book is all about. And he does that in four different ways in that expositional section in chapter one, verse four through chapter 10. He divides that up and makes comparison uh, between four different individuals or categories, and we'll get that to that in just a moment. But in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Now, I want to highlight this because it's so important. Most often when we think of the last days, because we've been taught this in evangelical America, the last days begin when Jesus returns for the second time. And that's when all the major stuff really starts to happen. The book of Hebrews, and for that matter, the rest of the Bible, if we're gonna take the Bible seriously, believe that the last days begin at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and end at his return. We see it right here. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, In chapter 9, verse 26, if you want to look this up at another time, it says this, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words the writer of the book of Hebrews, and we should understand we're living in the last age. The time between when Jesus first came and the time when Jesus will return. Now I'm not talking about what's gonna happen at the end or all the rest of it, but we need to understand that for the writer of Hebrews, the end of the age is now. Why is that important? Because Jesus is the final word And he has completed the final work. All there is going to be is a consummation of the age in which we live. And that's the viewpoint of the writer of Hebrews. So when he writes to his readers, he's writing with a sense of urgency. Reminding them that they are living at the end of the age. God has said what he is going to say and he will say no more and all that he has said has come through the person of Jesus and the work that needed to be accomplished has been accomplished and Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of the father you're in that age so I want you to understand why when I say persevere to the end what I'm talking about We're not looking for something else to start down the road. We're not looking for some new word of wisdom. We're not looking for some new event to take place that's going to send us off into a new trajectory. We're in it, you see. It's happening. And so I want you to understand this. So in this exposition, he makes comparisons to Jesus from four different categories that are very important categories to the Jews. The first, he says, Jesus is superior to angels. Secondly, he is superior to Moses. Thirdly, he is superior to Joshua. And fourthly, he is superior to Aaron and the Jewish priesthood. Now, now in the Jewish mindset, these four categories were the most important categories, and I'll tell you why. The angels were the ones who delivered the message of God to the prophets so that they could deliver it to the people. So angels were a really big deal. Now, he doesn't spend much time dealing with angels, but we'll see why, and he he glosses over them fairly quickly. Moses was not only the deliverer, but he was the giver of the law. Moses Very big deal in the Jewish mindset. Joshua, Joshua was the one who delivered the people into the promised land. He was the leader that saw the promises of God fulfilled. And of course, the priesthood through Aaron was the vehicle by which God's presence could be seen among his people and that could, forgiveness could be recognized, and so on and so forth. And so from chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 10, there are comparisons made to all these things. I'll just point out one in each category. It will not take us long. In chapter 1, very early on, he makes a comparison to the angels. And let me read verse 5 of chapter 1. Speaking of angels, he says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and you shall be my son. The comparison really is very quick and and comparatively simple. Angels, you're created beings. You are not my son. When I spoke to you to give a message to somebody to give to my people, that was the end of it. When I spoke through my son, I spoke through someone who was superior to you. There's a short exposition there that the writer goes on to explain, but, but that comparison goes comparatively briefly. Now when we get to Moses, Moses is, Moses is big. I mean, let's face it. Moses was huge, led the people out of slavery and captivity in Egypt, out into the desert. Miracles were performed that were beyond imagining. How can Jesus compare to Moses? In chapter 3, I'll just read verses 1 through 6. You see, because there is a brilliance in Moses, but there's a comparison that makes Jesus superior. Therefore, holy brothers, the writer says, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, which also means messenger, which also means angel, my messenger and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. See, there's the comparison. The Jewish side of them is very excited. Yeah, Moses was great. And he never says Moses wasn't. Moses was tremendous and he was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Well, now we're getting a little kinky here. How much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself? For every house is being built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as Son And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Lots of words. Moses was a servant in the house of God. He was faithful. He did a brilliant job. No taking away from Moses. But he is the servant. And a servant can be discharged Jesus was the head over the household as inheritor of the house. He cannot be discharged. He owns the house. Also faithful, but do we see the difference in position? That's the gist. Of the argument of the superiority of Jesus over Moses and it would have all been very understandable to the original readers and to us. In chapter 4 we have this idea of Joshua. Now Joshua was a warrior, a brilliant tactician, absolutely faithful to God and everything and his job was to deliver the people into the land of promise. The people were going to see the promise of God fulfilled under the leadership of Joshua, right? And Joshua did that. He brought the people into the promised land. But was it eternal? Was it eternal? Well, if we know anything about Old Testament history, the people came into the promised land and they held it for a while with great struggle and with great difficulty, and ultimately, a comparatively short time later, they lost it all. And it wasn't until 1948 that they got it back. So so Joshua's deliverance is clearly different than what God was promising because what God promised was eternal. So in chapter four, let me just start reading at verse eight for if joshua had given them rest god would have spoken would not have spoken of another day later on so then there remains a sabbath rest for the people of god that is yet to come for whoever has entered god's rest has also rested from his work as god did from his Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, or the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What Joshua brought the people into was short lived and it was not eternal. And so when God was speaking of rest, he was speaking of a rest that was yet to come, which was eternal, and that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that comparison with Joshua continues in the book, and the shalom of God is yet to come. It is something yet to come. And then we have the longest exposition of all, which is the comparison of Jesus to the priesthood and Aaron. And now, this was the biggest comparison in all because because that comparison says, How do I really have access to God? How can God dwell with his people? And we saw over and over again that the priests had to offer sacrifice for themselves in order to go into the Holy of Holies and and so on and so forth. But I want to read just one small section that kind of summarizes the superiority of Jesus over the entire system of the law, the priesthood, and Aaron. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says this, and we get to that great character, Melchizedek. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you were around for Melchizedek, I was grossly disappointing because I didn't tell you who he was. I didn't make all the magic disappear and all the rest of it. This is what we know about Melchizedek. It tells us that he was without beginning and without end. We didn't know when he was born and we didn't know when he died. And Jesus is called without beginning and without end but in an eternal fashion, meaning he really had no beginning and never has an end. And so consequently, he is the source of eternal salvation. Not temporary. The priesthood, the sacrifice had to go on over and over and over and over and over over again. And it never brought complete satisfaction. And it never brought complete salvation. But the sacrifice of Christ brought eternal salvation. The other thing that we know about Melchizedek is that he was not only the priest, but he was the king. And never in Israel's history was there ever a priest who was a king except the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the high priest and had the right to rule who had provided eternal salvation. And there's this lengthy exposition. If you've been with me throughout the last few months, you've heard all this conversation about the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice, and so on and so forth. And then we get to chapters 11 through 13, which are kind of the practical application of these themes, the superiority of the Lord Jesus. And there's this talk about faith and the, fa- the fact that we are to run the race with endurance and that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and there are these examples of who these witnesses are that have run the race before us. And this sense of urgency develops and there are warnings that we should stay on track and that we should div- divest ourselves of sin and anything that would slow us down and keep on course and run with perseverance, and that when we worship, we should worship God in how we treat each other, those in the community of faith who are afflicted, who are in prison, that we worship God with our money, in the sanctity of marriage. All these different ways in which God receives glory as we run the race. And we stop and we take a breath and we go, a lot of stuff in Hebrews, and I'm glad I don't have to worry about it till a long ways down the road. But we're in the end of the age. The race is not starting for us tomorrow, the race has begun. We are on course. And, and the question is, will we stay on course? Really, is what the book is all about. Will we choose to be marked as Christian, as followers of Christ? Will we run the race with endurance to the end? Do we see the goal as the glory of Christ in his presence in the end? That's that's the question. Because we're in it. We're not waiting to start it. The work is done. The word has been spoken. We're in it. The question is, how are we going to run it? Let's pray. Father, there is uh, no milk and a tremendous amount of meat in this book. And we should not start chewing tomorrow. We should start chewing today. And we should consider well how it is that you want us to run the race to the glory of Christ, who is the final word and the completed work. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.